Welcome to Creation Training Radio and TV. I'm your host, Mike Riddle, the founder and president of Creation Training Initiative, where our mission is to train up other Christians with the skills and knowledge to be able to defend their faith called biblical apologetics and be able to speak and teach about God's creation. Now, in today's lesson, we're going to start a new series called Defending the Biblical Faith. It's called Apologetics. Now, apologetics does not mean we apologize for what we believe. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which means we have a verbal defense for what we believe. Now, there's a sense in the church that apologetics is a biblical ministry only for the very specialized few, those who have the advanced degrees. However, great damage has been done because of this belief. And because of this belief, many churches and Christian university schools do not train up our Christian with the ability to defend their faith. Now, let me give you several reasons why we do apologetics. And the number one reason is evangelism, evangelizing and answering the critics. Number two reason we do apologetics is God is glorified. And the third reason we do apologetics, it strengthens and encourages the believers. It shows them that the Bible does have answers and they can have confidence in God's Word. But does God really call us to defend His faith? If not, then the whole idea of Christian apologetics is really a waste of time. But on the other hand, if apologetics can be used to bring people to understanding of the truth, then it is vital for all Christians, all who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, to take up this job description of defending the faith, becoming an apologist. Now the goal is always evangelism, to lead the believer to a knowledge, a saving knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ. Now apologetics is not preaching. But it is, does help us proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ by bringing down strongholds. Now in today's lesson, we're going to talk about two challenges. We're going to show you how to answer two different challenges. Number one, who did Cain marry? Who was Cain's wife? And number two, how could Adam have named all those animals, all those creatures in just one day? So those will be the two challenges we answer today. Now let's start with number one. Who did Cain marry? Now we really don't know her name, but yet this challenge comes up quite often. We've even seen it on television multiple times from the History Channel, where they taught the Bible was an embarrassment. Skeptics of the Bible have used this challenge as of who Cain married to discredit the book of Genesis as not being real history. So let's take a look. Why is this an important issue? Why is understanding who Cain married an important issue? Well, again, many skeptics have claimed that for Cain to have married somebody, there would have to been another race of people on the earth who were not descendants of Adam and Eve. To some Christians, this has become a stumbling block to accepting creation as a literal account of the Bible. In other words, it's not true history. Now, as defenders of God's Word, we are commanded through Scripture to answer these challenges. Let me give you just three verses in the Bible that command all Christians to be able to defend their faith. And the first one comes from 1 Peter 3.15, where we read this. 
but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks your reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Now notice it says, be ready always, not sometimes, but always with an answer to the challenges. And then we go to Jude 3, where it states, Beloved, when I gave you all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Notice in Jude 3 it says we are to contend for the faith. That word contend is a very strong word. It means we are to agonize for our faith, agonize, such as two runners reaching for the tape at the finish line. With every muscle in their body, they're trying to reach that tape to be the number one runner. That's what it means to agonize for our faith, and that's what God commands all Christians to do. And then in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5, we read, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So there are just three scriptures, 1 Peter 3.15, Jude 3, and 2 Corinthians 10.4.5, which teach that all Christians, not just specialized ones with higher degrees, but all followers of Jesus Christ need to learn and put into practice apologetics. Now, that's number one reason why we do apologetics. It is a biblical command. Now, the second reason we do apologetics is that our Christian youth are leaving the church. It has been shown that over 70% of our Christian youth leave the church before they finish school. And one of the main reasons is they lack confidence in God's Word. They no longer see God's Word as truth. But if we are to teach our youth that the Bible does have answers, called apologetics, and show them that they can defend God's Word, then we can stop this 70% casualty rate. Then our third reason why it matters is it affects our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We read in Romans 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And we also read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. The last Adam referring to Jesus Christ. So the scriptures state here very clearly, Adam was the first man. And this first Adam was responsible for sin entering into the world. God did not give us a whole race of people to start with. He gave us Adam and Eve. Also in this verse, Jesus Christ is called the last Adam. Now, the first Adam is not a true human being, just a figure of speech, as some have us believe. Then what do we make to make of the last Adam? Was Jesus Christ not a real person? Now, Genesis 2, verse 20. We are also told that when Adam looked at the animals, 
He couldn't find any of his own kind. So God created the first woman. This makes it obvious that there was only one woman, Adam's wife, from the very beginning. So Adam and Eve were the first people. Now, let's go to Cain. Who was Cain? Now, Cain was the first child born of Adam and Eve. He was the first of his brothers, Abel and Seth. And they were part of the first generation of children. However, we read in Genesis 5, verse 4, something very interesting. And it states, And the days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, were 800 years. Now get what it says next. And he begot sons and daughters. Notice there, in Genesis 5, verse 4, it says of Adam and Eve, they had other sons and daughters besides Cain, Abel, and Seth. This is plural. So Scripture does not tell us how many children Adam and Eve actually had. But it does state that Adam lived to be 930 years old. So it would be just logical to believe that they did have many, many children. Now we're not told when Cain married, but we can say for certain that Cain most likely married his sister. See, we have Adam and Eve as the first people. We have Cain, Abel, and Seth. Then it states that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. So who did Cain marry? Most likely his sister. Now, some people will immediately reject this idea because it is against the law to marry a close relation, brother or sister. Why is this? It's called incest. Now, why is it against the law to marry a close relation? What is incest? Well, again, incest is marrying a close relation. Why can't we do that today? It's because of mutations. We all have a tremendous genetic load of mutations, which are errors in our DNA, in our genes. The more closely two people are related, the greater the probability is they share a shame, same mutation, which means our children, our offspring, will also inherit that mutation, which could cause deformities in our children. So the reason we don't marry our close relation is to protect the children from being deformed from mutations. Now, does this mean the Bible teaches incest if Cain marries a sister? And the answer is no. We have to go back and read the scriptures. God's creation was perfect. How do we know it was perfect? Well, in Genesis 1.31, God called his entire creation very good, which again means perfect. No mutations. Now, in Scripture, God gave Adam and Eve one rule, and that rule was, do not eat of the fruit of this tree. And Adam and Eve disobeyed God's rule, and Adam and Eve sinned, and all of creation now comes under the curse. Now, because of the curse, mutations begin to spread in all the different kinds, including humans. But it wasn't until the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, which is about 2,500 years after creation, 2,500 years after the fall, that God, not man, God makes the rule, no longer can you marry your close relation, brother or sister. So was it incest? No. Now, let's look at this. By the time of Moses, which is again about 2,500 years after creation, enough mutations have spread through the humankind that it would be harmful for brother and sister to marry. 
So in Leviticus chapter 18, again, 2,500 years after creation, God makes the law. No longer are you allowed to marry your close relation. Now we can turn to another part. Let's go back to Genesis. Who did Abraham marry? His half-sister. Was this wrong? No, because it was still before Leviticus chapter 18. So to recap, who did Cain marry? Most likely his sister. Was this against the law, meaning incest? And the answer was no, because we did not have the genetic load of mutations back then. It was not again until the book of Leviticus chapter 18, which was about 2,500 years of accumulating mutations because of the fall, that God made the law, no longer can you marry your close relation. Now, when we turn to the study of genetics, this also supports exactly what the Bible teaches. An evolutionary geneticist stated in 2002, the total number of mutations per diploid human genome per generation is about 100. Now, what is he saying here? In other words, what he's saying is every new generation is getting about 100 new mutations. Now, based on that fact, every generation we go backwards in time has less mutations. And if we continue going back in time, each generation has less and less and less mutations till we get back to the beginning where there are very few mutations and eventually back to the very beginning where there are no mutations, which again exactly agrees with the Bible that in the beginning, God's creation was very good, perfect, no mutations, and then we have the fall and mutations begin to spread. So challenge number one has been answered. Who did Cain marry, his close relation or sister, and that was not incest. Now let's go to challenge number two. How could Adam have named all the animals in just one day? Well, since God's creation was perfect, no defects, and again, that's what states in Genesis 1.31, Adam would have had a perfect brain. We don't have perfect brains because we've gone through thousands of years of sin due to the curse. In other words, we are nowhere near as intelligent as Adam and Eve. Because of these thousands of years, because of sin, these thousands of years of mutations, we have gotten less and less intelligent than what Adam was. Now, just because we don't think we could have come up with all the names of these creatures does not mean Adam could not. Remember, Adam was created perfect. He would have had a perfect memory. It would have been very easy for Adam to come up with the names for all the animals. So let's take a look at some of the common misconceptions about Adam being able to name all the animals in one day. And there's a lot of common misunderstandings by people who make this challenge that one day is not enough time for Adam to name all the animals. But this is due to a failure to observe and read the scriptures carefully. Let's take, for example, number one. People assume Adam spent time in fellowship with the animals before he named all the animals. That's a common assumption. However, the Bible does not state that Adam spent a lot of time with the animals or in fellowship with the animals before he named them. Number two, Adam didn't have to go out on some wild safari and gather up all these creatures to name them. The Bible states that God brings these animals to Adam. He just lines them up and brings them to Adam. Now, uh, number three, 
there are, people will state there are too many creatures out there, too many animals for Adam to have named them all in one day. But this argument is used by some Christians who believe the Bible in only a general way, but who insist that science is the best way to interpret Scripture. And because of their understanding of science, these days of creation could not have been literal days. Well, first, the Bible does very clearly state that the days of creation were literal days. We see a number with the word day. Every time we have a number with the word day in the Old Testament, it only means a day. God defines his day, evening and morning, first day, evening and morning, second day. Third, in Exodus 20, verse 11, in fourth commandment, God states, for in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So God specifically tells us in his word, the days were little days. Now also, the Bible does not state that Adam had to name all the animals or the birds or the mammals. Second, Adam did not then have to name every species of creature. He only had to name the kinds. Remember, God created every creature after its kind. So all he had to name was the dog. All he could say was dog, took care of all the different varieties of dogs we would have. All he could say was cat, that would have taken care of all the varieties of cats we have. Now we also read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, and it states, And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found unhelp meat for him. Now, according to verse 20, Adam only named the cattle, the beast of the field, and the birds of the air. He was not responsible for naming the sea creatures, the beast of the earth, meaning all the earth, or creeping things, indicating insects. Note that the animals that were not included that were included were only the cattle, the birds, and the field animals. Not included were the beasts of the earth, the creeping things, and the fish of the sea. Thus, the vast multitudes of marine animals and insects, as well as reptiles and amphibians, would not have been included in the creatures Adam had to name. So this would considerably reduce the amount of animals he had to name. Now, let's take a look at some numbers. Let's put some numbers behind this. There are currently about 2 million recognized known species. That doesn't mean Adam had to name 2 million species. Of these, 98% are invertebrate. Those are creatures without backbones. They would not have been included in the creatures Adam had to name. The remaining 2% then would be the vertebrae, which would be about 40,000 creatures. But Adam didn't have to name 40,000 creatures. Of these 40,000 creatures, approximately 25,000 are marine creatures, which Adam did not have to name. And in addition, about 4,000 of those are amphibians, which will also not be included in the creatures Adam had to name. This leaves us about 11,000 creatures for Adam to name. However, he doesn't have to name 11,000. Of these 11,000, most would have descended from some original kind or proto-species. This would leave approximately 2,000 creatures Adam had to name on day six. Now, if he had named five every minute, Adam could have done this very easily in five and a half hours. Therefore, it can be demonstrated that Adam could have easily named all these creatures in less than six hours 
and still taking a five-minute break every hour. So now, let's take a look at a possible timeline of the events on day six, using the information given to us in Genesis 1 and 2. Let's suppose at 6 a.m., God creates the land animals. Then at 7 a.m., God creates Adam from the dust. Then at 8 o'clock, God creates the garden and puts Adam in it. Then from 9 to 11 o'clock, we'll give Adam two hours to tend the garden. Then from 11 o'clock in the morning to 5 o'clock in the afternoon, Adam names all the creatures. And again, that's only about 2,000 creatures. Then from maybe 5 o'clock to 7 o'clock, Adam sleeps and God creates Eve from Adam's side. Then from 7 to 8 o'clock, Adam and Eve meet and God tells them what they should and shouldn't do. But of course, there's no reason it would have taken God an hour to create all the animals and then another hour to create Adam. He could have easily done this instantly. So we have shown that all the events on day six could have easily taken place in about 12 hours. And we can trust the Bible when it says God's creation was six little days. It is only when people honor man's wisdom over the plain reading of God's word by inserting millions of years into the Bible that the sixth day appears to describe too many events. We should heed the teachings of Jesus Christ. He warns us about trusting the Bible's history, that we should trust what is in the Old Testament. We read in John chapter 5, verse, verses 46 and 47, For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how should you believe my words? Now, what did Moses record? Moses wrote down the first five books of the Bible. And here's Jesus Christ saying, if you don't believe what Moses wrote, how are you going to believe what he says? Then in John chapter 5, verse 12, we read the words of Jesus again. If I told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, what is Jesus Christ telling us? That if you don't believe the physical things that are history God wrote about, how are you going to believe the spiritual things that God has given us? See, God made it plain for us to understand in Genesis chapter 1 that his creation was six literal days and there was plenty of time for all the events to take place on day six. Now, let's talk about some Hebrew scholars. Professor James Barr, a Hebrew scholar, makes this statement about the days of creation. So far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writers of Genesis 1 through 11 intended to convey to the readers the ideas that A, creation took place in a series of six days, which are the same as the as the days of 24 hours we now experience. And B, the figures contained in Genesis genealogies provided by simple addition, a chronology from the beginning of the world to latter stages in the biblical story. Now, likewise, Hugh Williamson, another Hebrew scholar, makes this statement. So far as the days of Genesis 1 are concerned, I am sure that Professor Barr was correct. I have not met any Hebrew professors who had the slightest doubt about this. In other words, the vast majority of Hebrew scholars all agree that God intended his days of creation to be literal 24-hour days. 
Now in this lesson, we have answered two challenges. Number one, who was Cain's wife? And we stated that was his sister, most likely his sister, and that was not incest because we did not have the genetic load of mutations back then. And challenge number two, how could Adam have named all the animals in one day? And we answered that. It was not every species or every creature Adam had to name. Only certain creatures that God brought to him. And it was only about 2,000 creatures, and Adam could have easily done this in under six hours. Now, we're going to answer more challenges in sessions to come. And we're going to make sure that we start with God's Word, starting in the very first verse, in the beginning God created. What we need today, something we need today, are strong leaders who will stand on the authority of God's Word. We need strong church leaders who are unashamed to stand on the authority of God's Word. We need leaders who have answers to the arguments and challenges coming from the non-believers. And once we can train up this generation, once we can train our pastors, our teachers, and our church leaders, they, begin, they can begin to effectively train this next generation to stand firm on their belief in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we grow and equip this next generation of believers, we must remember they will be the next generation of youth leaders, of pastors, Sunday school teachers, homeschool educators, Christian school teachers, and leaders in industry. And we need to train them so that they can in turn equip the next generation coming after them to stand firm on the authority of God's Word. What we need to do, as it states in Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he was old, he will not depart from it. Thank you very much, and God bless you. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website, creationtraining.org. Again, that's creationtraining.org. Your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month, or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's Word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear.